This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am the host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your Book, Your School, Not Your Book, How to Redesign Your School for Anyone Who's Coming. Boy, I just butchered that one up. I am a former principal, all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cyber Traps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a force as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. It is the pleasure uh, to, it is our pleasure to announce that Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, reach out to Scott Rabinowitz at Scott R Media on LinkedIn or visit buoyancydigital.com. Hey there, Jethro. Well, hello, Fred. That might have been our worst introduction ever. Yeah, and that that includes our first one. So let's blame it on our guest. (laughs) Whose whose bio I did update for you so that it's in third person instead of first, by the way. Yes. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Um, 
Before I introduce our guest, Jethro, I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, this is, in fact, a holiday in the United States. It is. I want to extend my appreciation to all of the people, both in my family and others, who have served on behalf of our country. Yes, me too. And uh, also remember those who didn't serve, but served in other ways as well. And that's what Memorial Day is all about. So thanks, everybody, for letting us share that. And our ability to do this stems directly from those sacrifices. So we Mm -hmm. really do appreciate everything that went into that. With that somber note, it is now a pleasure to turn our attention to today's guest, who is Bjarke Calvin. He comes from a media background and has spent a lot of time on projects that battle the negative effects of social media. That is a big task. That led to a deep interest in how we can generally use our digital devices and internet content in a more healthy way. His current project is called Timer Kid, which is designed to help families balance their screen activity in an easy way. Uh, Before that, he founded Duckling.co, an alternative social media platform without advertising algorithms and or spam. Uh, He is a journalist by training and from 2004 to 2009 was executive editor with the world's leading photo agency, Magnum Photos in New York City. So we've overlapped a little bit in this part of the world. Uh, BRK has helped to build a new multi-million dollar business area before becoming an entrepreneur with a focus on media technology. He has also worked as an advisor for media corporations like PBS, Time, and the New York Times. He is an alumni fellow with MIT Open Doc Lab and speaks at a variety of conferences and universities worldwide, including MIT, Harvard TEDx, and one of my favorites, South by Southwest. Bjarke currently lives in Copenhagen, Denmark, with his wife and two kids age eight and six. So Bjarke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And um, any technical flaws, just blame them on me. I can take it. <laughs> well, that would be absolutely ungracious of us. And I think we'll take full <laughs> responsibility yeah. for and, our own flaws. And those were not technical <laughs> but, flaws. Though were, those were just us being bumbling idiots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but thanks a lot anyways. I'm really uh, happy and, um, and honored to be, to be here. Well, that's fantastic. So let's start off with a little bit of background. Um, You are Danish by birth and by citizenship, um, but you spent a bunch of time here in New York City, in Brooklyn. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the work you did and a little bit about the journey to what you're doing now. Yes, so I I got into interactive documentary, it was called, um, back um, around the turn uh, of the century. So like 99, 2000. And, um, you know, to people a little younger than us, you really have to explain the scenario that you had no social media, you had no cell phones, you had, or you had cell phones, but no, no internet connected cell phones and um, no broadband, all this stuff. It's, um, it's not that long ago, but it was a completely different world. And um, so it was also very um, early on that I started experimenting with photos and videos and telling stories with that online. And that brought me to, a, to the job you mentioned um, in the intro at Magnum Photos in New York. Um, and I also have a fair bit of entrepreneurial spirit and, um, and tech interest in me. Um, so... Um, and I got super inspired by the entrepreneurial spirit of the U.S. and that whole climate 
Um, of course, at the time, it was mostly on the West Coast, but also things were also happening on the East Coast as well. So um, so after a while, while with Magnum, I, um, I decided to um, take the leap into startup land. And I built a platform back then for photographers where they could do their own interactive stories, we called them. Nowadays, it's just called stories and they're on Instagram um, and Snapchat and so on. But back then it was like a brand new thing. But um, unfortunately, we didn't do as well as Instagram, but I learned a bunch. Um, and but it I, I mean, I was really um, excited about the possibilities of, of independent publishing and later social media. I saw it as, okay, now it's happening. Now we're all going to see this like gigantic world brain um, where we're all going to be informed and connected and it's going to change everything and illuminate all of us. And then and how's that working out for us right now? <laughs> so, yeah. So what happened is that um, first Google um, figured out that they could make a business model by, um, by just monetizing all of our private data and then, Facebook basically just emulated or copied that idea. And, um, and that set social media on the trajectory that we see now, um, where it's not really to the benefit of all of us. Um, or rather, I mean, of course, there are huge benefits with um, the internet and social media and that whole realm. Um, but there are also some, some, some huge downsides and some huge costs. And um, I think this is what makes it so complicated that would the world be better off if we didn't have Google and iPhones and all of that? No, it wouldn't. Um, because, you know, it's amazing that I can land in a city I don't know and I can actually navigate it with my maps on my phone. And I can even, you know, not before Corona, I was in, um, in, in Barcelona. I don't speak very well Spanish and this the cab driver from the airport just had google translate on his phone and he would speak in spanish and you know the phone would translate it on the fly into english and i would speak back to him and so there's all these amazing things about you know our internet driven world but there's also the flip side and the cost which is there's very few people like some and some huge corporations owning all the data and um, and also with a huge interest in making us addicted and just making us spend more and more time and spend all our, you know, uh, share everything that we do um, on these networks. Um, and there's some problematic things about that. Um, so, so this is also, you know, where my life has sort of headed is to try to, because I come from, from a position where I saw this huge potential I also got super um, frustrated by the fact that we've just taken another road. And um, so I've, um, without getting too highbrow, I can say I've dedicated my life a little bit to making us, um, you know, reshift that balance. Well, I think that's one of the reasons it's so good for Jethro and for me to talk with you because this podcast and, and also the Center for Cyber Ethics, which we've just launched, is really aimed at that same general mission. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. In terms of your bio and your background, one of the things I was really interested to see was that it, it this concern, these issues led you to develop Duckling.go. 
And I'd love to hear more about that, particularly the non-algorithmic piece, because that seems almost um, existentially in conflict with the idea of social media. So how did that play out for you? What, what's that like? You're actually super right. I mean, and, and I, it, it, it's been pretty tough to do stuff without algorithms and advertising. And I mean, we basically launched, so we, we sat down and, you know, said, if we were to build the social media that we would want, how would it look? And my main thing was it should be something that makes my worldview broader and not more narrow. So it needed to be something where people share stuff that they actually know something about and not just stuff to promote themselves. And it should be a place where you don't get put into echo chambers and don't hear the opinions and voices of other people and so on. So to do that, we figured out, okay, maybe we should remove the algorithms. We've since come to recognize that, you know, maybe the right way is not completely to remove the algorithms, but maybe to, to create a better form of algorithms. Um, the New York Times has a great podcast called The Rabbit Hole, um, where they, um, they look at how these things work. And they have an interview with the guy who invented the YouTube recommendation algorithm, which is, you know, the little movies we get when we get to the end of a YouTube uh, video, you get suggested stuff. And it sort of takes us into a rabbit hole. And the problem is that, um, you know, you can get really rad radicalized by this because you start to see, you know, you might start to see something that's fairly moderate, and then it gets more and more and more radical. And you you know, because you're sucked into all these videos, it appears to you as if that is actually how the world works. Um, so, so they have an interview with the guy that invented it, a French programmer, and he realized this um, by observing people in the public space. And then he went to his uh, superiors at Google or at YouTube, and he said, um, you know, I think we should reverse and, uh, you know, re-engineer this, this algorithm so it actually gives different opinions and different worldviews to people. And then basically he was told to just back off mm -hmm. because what it does is it makes you super addicted and it made YouTube, this algorithm made YouTube take off in an incredible way. So of course it's, you know, it's, it's really beneficial if you want to make money from advertising. But for us as human beings, um, it's not super beneficial. It's actually pretty bad for us. So well, that's the whole dilemma. Yeah. Uh, BRK, have you heard of the Mastodon social network that uh, can be federated between different servers? What are your thoughts on that versus what you're trying to do with Duckling Co? Because it sounds like they're kind of similar in some regards. Yeah. In some regards, I mean, Mastodon is more like a Twitter and um, Duckling, the format is really like stories. Um, from Instagram, you know, it's it's really highly um, uh, visual, so you can swipe through images and videos and little text quotes. Um, whereas Mastodon is um, these sh short text snippets with attached images and so on. So the format is more like Twitter, but I think in, in essence, it's a super interesting project, um, also because it has this decentralized nature to it. So instead of you know, having a central platform like Twitter, um, you can actually set up your own little version of Twitter, or in this case, Mastodon. And then you can connect it also to, you know, all the little individual services can be connected to each other. And I think that speaks into 
you know, an interesting model for the future. Um, my, 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 uh, I was going to say concern, but it's not really a concern, but, and it's not really a critique either, but, you know, the thing, the weakness, I think with a lot of these platforms, there are various ones, there are Mastodon and there's also others, um, is that they're not super con um, uh, consumer friendly and they, they lack sort of a, a, a sexiness. So they're really made for more um, purpose-driven or geeky kind of people. Um, but I think what we need in social media is, you know, kind of the Tesla of social media or um, uh, the iPhone where um, it's, in the case of Tesla, it, you know, it's, a, it's an electric car and it does something good for the environment, but it's also a super nice, very sexy car that most people just get because it's an awesome car. Um, and then the benefit, you know, it's almost like a side benefit that it actually is electrical. And, um, and, and I think we need the same thing to make an alternative social media really take off. We need something that's just as sexy as Instagram or easy to use, um, but just happens to be good for us. And that's the, you know, the big difficult thing to crack. Um, we've learned a lot with Duckling and I, I actually put it, um, on standby sort of for almost a year just to evaluate and figure out what could we do about this. And um, one of the really, really difficult things is that there's this network effect. So if you switch from Instagram and have 2,000 followers and go to Duckling, you're not going to get a lot of followers and, and likes and so on to begin with because there's not a lot of people there. Um, it's like, you know, it's like the first person that got the phone it, it wasn't very valuable to be the only one with a phone but once you know two people had a phone you're already better off and then you know once a thousand people had a phone it was much better so and so that's the problem how do you get to that volume i mean we have about two thousand active users at duckling and that's not quite enough to create that effect you need to have like ten thousand maybe twenty thousand um but how do you get to that it's a chicken and egg thing but well, my conclusion, you know, Bjarke, yeah. I think part of that is that you you need those other people to have these bigger followings. But what I loved about Twitter in the early days was that I could find my tribe and and have my group of people that I followed and, and others followed. And and now it seems like there's a lot fewer conversations that are happening and there's a lot more you know just tagging and you know sharing links and things like that. And it it would I miss those days of real intimate connection that that was happening early on. And so there's a challenge because a lot of people want lots of followers and want to get their message out there. I mean, we certainly want millions of people listening to this podcast every day. So, so that's a real yes. thing, but at the same time, it, as you move at scale like that, it becomes so much more difficult to, um, to have those real authentic conversations that you're seeking. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where maybe a model like Mastodon could work. I mean, you know, it's like I said, it's, you know, the model might be right, but it might need some polishing and some consumer um, sort of uh, glimmer to make it work. You know, like um, the old story with Apple, um, where it was actually Xerox who invented the whole user interface with Windows and a mouse that you could use to navigate. And then Steve yep. Jobs and Apple took it and made it 
consumer friendly and polished and um, and then it took off like wildfire so it might be that mastodon actually has the right model but somebody needs to take it and make it more consumer friendly well, that's actually, my hypothesis. <laughs> Bjarke, I think that, that for starters, just as an observation, it's a bold PR strategy to name your service after an extinct species. So <laughs> I give yeah. them credit. I give <laughs> I give them credit for that. Um, your remarks about Tesla are interesting because, it, well, again, as an aside, one of our kids bought one of the recent Model Threes you know, for precisely the reasons you're talking about. It's, I mean, he's a geeky kid and he loves the toys in the car and it's very comfortable and appealing, um, but also because of the Elon Musk factor, right? I mean, that celebrity plays a role in all of this. And just speaking personally, the idea of, of Elon Musk setting up and running a social media service is a little scary. Um, because <laughs> um, some of his judgment calls, I think, are a little off the beam. But the broader issue, the, the, the issue that Jethro is alluding to in terms of user base and engagement and so on and so forth, that um, it does seem to be so much driven by celebrity and by this algorithmic engagement. And I was wondering if this is a great opportunity to segue to your project on Timer Kid, because that that gra grasping of kids or that um, capturing of kids' minds and attention is an ongoing issue that we think about, um, particularly with, you know, YouTube. One of our other boys, I really actually had exactly those worries because he, you know, the joke was when I was doing my presentations, nobody could ever watch all of the stuff on YouTube but my son was going to give it a try. He was going to see. <laughs> so that, that one hits home with me. And I'd love to hear how Timer Kid plays into all of these issues, you know, in terms of what our kids are seeing. And just as an aside, you're a perfect person to ask because you have these young rising kids. So how does that affect your parenting decisions? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we're um, four founders of, of timer kit uh, me and then um the guy who actually had the original idea which wasn't mine um uh, he is an engineer and then we have a, a software programmer and a child psychiatrist um so we banded together and collectively we have nine ten kids um from the ages 23 to uh, six so we, we we sort of collectively know all the faces and i'm just you know, sort of getting started out. My son watches quite a lot of YouTube by now. He plays Roblox and Minecraft and a few other things. And my daughter has started watching YouTube. It's funny because she actually has a lot of English words now because of YouTube. So there's, you know, that's one example of, you know, it also works um, well for some. So, so what we basically agreed on is there's some great things about this. Like my son socializes when he's gaming with his friends and he's building stuff and he learns stuff. And, um, you know, when they get older and start using social media, they, they learn and they create and they socialize together. So there's some great things, but um, there's also like, we touched upon some really bad things and it's really annoying to see sort of, you know, you know, your kids getting addicted to stuff and keep asking you for money to buy things. And, you know, 
all those mechanics. And we just felt that as parents, we were really, you know, the odds for us were pretty bad because we're up against these huge corporations who spend millions, billions um, on creating mechanisms that makes you addicted. And this is not just, you know, a problem for kids, but also for grownups. But of course, it's our responsibility as grownups to, to help kids out of that. And we felt that we had, you know, our odds weren't so good. So we wanted to even up the odds and we wanted to balance things. So we're not saying, you know, we want to eradicate screens or uh, social media or games because we think there's some good things about it, but we're saying we need to create balance. And so the way we go about it, so the first thing was to figure out a way to make it really easy for people with no technology, because there's way of, ways of doing it now if you're a little tech savvy, but we wanted any kind of mom to be able to do this. Um, so we decided on a solution, which is a little box. It's essentially a, a Wi-Fi router, but we just call it a box to take the tech out of it. And you plug that in either to your existing router or directly into your internet and replace your existing router. And then you have a new Wi-Fi network. And that Wi-Fi network you connect all your screens to. And um, like, you know, it can be a PC, it can be a Mac, it could be a PlayStation. Um, it can also be your... your phones and so on. Um, and then as a parent, you have an app and you can then set rules. So you can say after five o'clock, you can only use school apps. So this is also uh, important that you, we don't close the internet. It's not like turned on or tur turned off. It's specific gaming apps and social media that we can turn off and then we can let you access the rest of it, Wikipedia or whatever you want to do. Um, so, uh, so, so you make rules um, for when you want to use what. Um, and then the other thing that we are creating is this parent um, community where we're going to put up a lot of content about how to deal with various situations with your kids, how to make rules together. Um, and this is also why we have the child psychiatrist involved. Um, she's actually the leading one in Denmark. She's like um, on TV all the time talking about this. The Frederick Lane of Denmark. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's very funny, Bjork. <laughs> but uh, but we feel we have there's a whole like parents parenting paradigm in Scandinavia, um, which is based a lot on trust and on um, sort of um, collaboration, um, which I think is one of the things that we can actually as Danes and as Northern Europeans add to this whole equation. I'm, I'm you know, I think in the US, um, you know, there's a lot of incredible focus on startups. And there's a reason why all these um, startups come out of the US. Um, but in Europe, and particularly in Northern Europe, there is a real focus on humanity and ethics and, um, you know, how we work without like glorifying things. But, but, um, but there's, and I think there's a real interesting mix there. So what we want to take is some of these like Nordic parenting paradigms and add them to the equation. So you don't just sit down and decide, you know, now I'm going to make all these rules and then I impose them on my kids. You sit down with your kids and then you have a framework. So you say, you're allowed to, to game an hour a day, but you can decide, do you want to game like four hours on Tuesday and you know, one hour on Monday and one on Sunday. It's up to you. But the frame is this. So it's not about just, you know, 
co-deciding everything with your kids. As a grown-up, you need, or as a parent, you need to to take responsibility. And your your kids are not equipped to take all the decisions. Their brains are not, you know, developed enough for that. But um, but your 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 kids can decide certain things with a in a framework. And then, and then yeah, you have okay. to trust them also. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, I just want to interrupt here for a second, because I think that what you're talking about is so important. I want to slow down and talk about it for a minute, because it's something that we in America can certainly have some help with. And, you know, I was a former principal, so I've been, you know, all levels of uh, K-12 education and seeing that what you're describing is that the adults set the rules and then force the kids to follow them. And what is so much more beneficial is what you're talking about, which is setting boundaries and having the kids work within those boundaries. And this is where so many parents get into trouble because they, they either don't set any boundaries or they set rules and force their kids to follow them. And it leads to rebellion, at least kids being frustrated, not understanding why they're allowed to do certain things. But that one example of, of playing games for five hours a week or one hour per day on average, and then having the kid decide how to do it and recognizing that that is totally fine and totally appropriate is a really good strategy to teach the adults how to put in boundaries and the kids how to live within those boundaries and to be able to have a discussion about it. So I just wanted to slow that down for a second, just point out how valuable that is. And when we do that in schools with what kids are learning, it becomes even more valuable because then they start to understand that they have a life and choices and that it's on them to make those choices. It's not just on them to follow whatever rules somebody puts out there for them. Yeah, so right. And, you know, this is actually also, you know, learning from me. One of the interesting things about being an entrepreneur is that you learn a ton of new stuff all the time because you just start things that you don't really know that much about. And, you know, I had an idea idea of course with timer kid um that we needed a tool um but um but then we got ula the psychiatrist on board and she's just taught me so much about this stuff um and uh, you know so that's one of the, the things the other thing is that it's actually really um not so much at least that's her point like it's not so much about the amount of time you use but it's also how you use the screens so you can be playing something with your friends um, and or maybe even with the parent next to you um, and and doing it for, you know, three hours. And that can be better than playing for one hour in a, some crazy shooter game where you're just all locked in and by yourself and so on. Um, so part of this is also, and this is, you know, a bit of a challenge. I've also faced it myself that, as parents, we need to get involved. So we can't just let our kids sit in closed rooms and play by themselves. Um, we need to, and, and you need to start this early on. So already when they're starting out, six, seven years old, or whenever early five or whatever, um, you need to, to already then pay attention to what your kid is doing and ask questions and get involved. And you know if they're really interested in some new game, you sit down with them and you try to understand what they're doing. Um, personally, I'm not really interested at all in gaming, so it's been a bit of a challenge and I don't, you know, go so far as to play games on the screen with my kids, but I do try to 
understand and watch a few YouTube videos with them and get an idea of what they're doing. Because this way they're going to share with you when they have issues um, and, and so on. And, you know, boys that are gaming is one thing, but you also have uh, the girls who are um, heavily into social media and then enter cyberbullying and all these things. Um, and, um, and if you're not super involved or at least somewhat involved from an early age, um, you're not going to have that trust between you as a parent, as a uh, and, and, a, and a kid so so um so so that's uh yeah another that's, yeah, yeah Bjarke, that's that's a great summation of a lot of the stuff that jethro and i talk about it's it's really gratifying to hear that you're exactly on the same page as as we are the only the only thing i'd toss out is that um in many cases it's probably necessary to start those conversations when kids are two, three, four years old, just because the use of devices is happening so young these days. Uh, one of the things that Jethro and I did recently was put together an audio course built around raising cyber ethical kids. So it's an opportunity for parents to really listen uh, to suggestions about how to develop those conversations with their children. and make the children agents in their own use of devices so that you've got some give and take. The one other thing I really wanted to comment on and maybe elaborate, have you elaborate a little bit on is the community aspect of what you're doing with Timer Kid. We actually just the other day did a great interview with this guy from France named Philippe Pumeau, who's bringing the open source crowd informed approach to cybersecurity and IP identification to defeat phishing, hacking, so on and so forth. And some of those same principles seem directly applicable to helping parents deal with technology. That's exactly what I was thinking as he was talking about this. I was like, these two need to meet if they haven't yet. Because Yeah, I mean, obviously, most parents are not going to be worried about blocking, you know, malicious IP addresses on a daily basis. But philosophically, you guys are exactly on the same yeah. page. No, they're, they're the same exact idea taken two different ways, which I think is just amazing. It sounds super interesting. You guys are going to be like, Great matchmakers, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we've had some luck so far. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's definitely um, a super good point to get the community aspect um, in this as well, and it's something we've been discussing. So one part is, you know, the sites that you want to block and the sites that you want to leave open. Um, you could have, you can have some, you know, algorithmic power behind this, but but. You can also imagine a people-powered um, uh, thing where, you know, almost like, you know, you have Waze, the traffic app that allows you to, you know, message each or notice each other about traffic uh, incidents or, you know, and, and you could have the same thing. Like if, if I, as a parent, discover something, you know, it could be even a single YouTube video or something I can market and it it's fed into our data and we know, you know, if, if 30 parents have all marked this one, then it's probably something we should check out. So that's one side of it. Um, the other side is actually the rules um, because, you know, what we're facing as parents is like, um, so we restrict our kid. We just had it in my, in, in my son's class where one of his friends, um, his parents chose that he can only play games 
in the weekends. Um, and we actually have a conversation because they were starting to get worried because he's, you know, he's getting hit socially by that mm -hmm. because, um, you know, his friends are all playing games and they asked us like, uh, would you consider, you know, just restricting Louis or, you know, and it's, it's difficult because they used to play together all the time, but part of what they do is they discuss their games and so on. And, and his friend were like, then suddenly shut out of that. Um, and so it's, it's hot as a parent because you don't want to impose your parenting on other parents. Um, but on the other hand, it does take some collaboration. And maybe, so we're wondering, could we build something in? Like, could we make shared rules? So you could make a rule that says, um, you know, no, no gaming after six o'clock. And you could share it as a, as a class, as parents in a, in a, in a school class or something like that. Um, so, so that's the other part of it, like helping parents collaborate and align on things. Yeah, this, this co community aspect, I think, is really important because you're right. It does have an effect now, especially as the games are more social. And so if you if if everybody is playing a Minecraft together after school one day and they're all connecting, but then Johnny isn't because his, he's not allowed to play it on the weekends and the parents have the opposite. The other parents have the opposite rule that you're going to go do sports on Saturdays. Um, then the, Johnny's going to be left out and not be engaged. And that's that's something real to think about. Um, I don't know that we have the the exact right answer, but sharing rules amongst a class or something like that or a social group seems like a, a good step in the right direction. But but those are real issues that do affect kids that they probably can't articulate all that well, except to say. Um, all my friends are talking about Minecraft all the time and I don't get to play it. And now I'm mad, which, you know, isn't a very uh, clear way for a parent to understand what's really going on. But a lot of parents won't think about that. The other thing of the community is being able to share when some sites are inappropriate. I mean, it is not hard to make a new website and anybody can do that and post whatever they want on there. And so it, it takes time to figure those things out. And in schools, what we did is we stopped we didn't stop, but we we stopped focusing on the blocking and started focusing more on talking to kids about what kind of sites they were using. Because if you just say, well, you can only use sites that are unblocked, then, you know, somebody's going to find a site that isn't very popular yet, that has bad information, they're going to start using that. And that's not the kind of approach that we want to take. I think you're absolutely right about that. Like, that's also the approach we've chosen so far with Timer Kid is um, we're going to stay a little bit out of the blocking sites. Um, I mean, we're going to block all the known games and all that. That's fairly easy. But we're not going to promise that we block everything um, because there's always going to be like some little crazy individual that's done a porn block somewhere. And, and then, you know, if we promise to block porn, then it's going to be pretty upsetting for our customers to discover that that's not the case. So. You know, of course, we're going to continuously think, like, can we build stuff in that blocks? But I think it's just as important to build pedagogical advice and, and, and um, uh, sort of approaches in that uh, teaches parents, okay, you know, teach your kids that it's actually a super bad idea and this is why, um, rather than try to, to block them with technology. I mean, it's been the same thing in the past, you know, 
growing up, it's not so much in the state, but like growing up in Denmark, you know, you could buy as a kid, you could buy alcohol anywhere. It sounds kind of weird, I know, to to Americans, and it's become more strict. But you know, my my my, you know, parents would tell their kids, "Could you run down to the corner store and buy like a case of beer for me?" And you would just be able to do that. So, so my parents and other parents told their, you know, typically told their kids, it's really a bad idea to get really drunk um, when you're a kid. And, um, and, but you couldn't really be sure, like, because as a kid, you could go and buy alcohol. And we did also at certain points go and, I mean, I think most Danish kids did that, but because our parents had really to- told us that it was, you know, the consequences, uh, um, we, um, we knew that, okay, it was, not the best thing so instead of like getting really drunk we would maybe drink just two beers just to get an idea of what it was like and and i i believe somewhat in that that you know you're not gonna a- ever be able to prevent kids from find finding stuff online that's not good be it porn or whatever but you can teach them that um it's a really bad idea and then they can they they'll be you know, a bit more responsible about it. Well, yeah. so much of this BRK seems to be driven by the value of education, both for kids and for parents. And it seems to me that if you're giving parents a tool or, or selling parents a tool that gives them more information and more control over what their kids are seeing and when, that's, that's a really powerful thing. I think that the thing I was struck by was this idea, and Jethro, you were referencing this, of of kids having different rules from house to house, and that's never going to go away. And, and part of the parenting task is to explain to kids, well, you know, Johnny's mommy and daddy have different values than we do, and this is why we do what we do. And I think, again, and we keep beating this drum, Jethro. We need like a sound effect. We, we come sure back <laughs> to this idea that parents and kids need better communication from early ages on so that there's more discussion and more understanding of the perspectives of each. You know, parents are still parents, but they can they can explain what they're doing and why they're doing it. Yeah, totally. And I think it's, you know, it's also super useful or you know, an, a, a great opportunity for us parents to reevaluate the way we use our devices when we look at our kids and we impose restrictions because, you know, Absolutely. part of the big problem is, <laughs> I mean, we, we, uh, we, we run around with our screens all the time and the kids look at that and of course they're going to do the same thing. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, we also need to look at that when we, when we handle screen balance in the home. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. And something that that we have harped on numerous times also, because it's so easy to uh, be on your phone and yell at your kid to not be on their device. And it's so hypocritical, but, you know, it, we have to recognize that kids are different than adults and, you know, it's the, it's the same kind of thing. And, you know, with alcohol or pornography or other things that are designed for adults um, or forbidden for kids to have them, you know, we have to continue having those conversations. So Bjarke, this has been a great conversation with you today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to see what the future holds for Duckling and for Timer Kids. So thank you so much for being part of the Cybertraps podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure.
BRK, it's been great to reconnect and hopefully we will have further conversations going forward. Definitely, definitely. Let's stay in touch. Uh, your initiative sounds really interesting with the... Um, the, 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 what do you, the Center the for Cyber Ethics. Center, yeah. Center, yep. Center, yeah. We'll so, definitely uh, yeah, be yeah, chatting with you about that. Yeah, excellent. Sounds good. Well, okay. that wraps up Great. this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of truly international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital misconduct. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your colleagues and contact us if you want to talk about uh, feedback or uh, topic suggestions. A lot, uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this episode. If so, please leave us a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. We look forward to seeing you on Thursday. Have a great day. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.